Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast, Australian Anaesthesia, where we talk all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. Today, I am chatting with Dr. Kushlani Stevenson, who is the Director of an Anaesthesia Department here in Melbourne, and also author of the Peer Group document. Kushlani is also on the Executive Committee of the Wellbeing Special Interest Group, In this episode, we talk about a document that she wrote about peer groups. In the last few months, I've had a number of people contact me. It was pretty hard going here in Melbourne for a while. I hope most of us around the country are feeling in a much better mood. The case numbers for COVID are down, the weather is starting to get warmer and things are starting to look good. So I wanna start now thinking about the long game when it comes to wellbeing, and potentially this could be a good time to start thinking about forming a peer group. So with that, let's get into it. Thank you, Chris Lani, for joining me today. For those people who haven't met you before, you are the director of an anesthesia department here in Melbourne. So thank you for taking some time out of your busy director's day to join me. We also worked together on the welfare of anesthetists special interest group, now called the Wellbeing SIG, and you wrote this excellent resource document on peer groups. And I've had a lot of questions lately for people wanting to form peer groups, a lot of them not surprisingly from Victoria because of the lockdown. We've had a lot more people working from home, a lot more people not doing as much clinical work as they used to, and certainly a lot more isolation creeping in. So I thought this was a really good time to revisit what a peer group is and how it works and how to get those difficult CPD points. So first of all, we are referring to a document, which I will put a link to in the show notes. And it's called Peer Groups. But just remind me, how do we find this document? So the best way to find this document is probably going through the ACE website. So ACE stands for Anesthesia Continuing Education. And if you go to there, it will take you through to a tab of the um, special interest groups. Now, we were the Welfare of Anesthetists group, and now we are the Wellbeing Special Interest Group. And so if you scroll to the bottom of that and find the SIG LibGuide, then the peer group document is there. It's a little bit of an orphan document because it doesn't really fall into any of the criteria of a resource document or a professional document. And so it has its own little space as a little bit of a guide. Having said that, it is a very good resource document. You make a really good point there that all of the special interest groups do sit under ACE, which is Anesthesia Continuing Education. And ANSCA, the ASA and the New Zealand Society are the parent bodies for all the special interest groups. So they're all tripartite. It's a partnership that we all have. And it's the secretariat that sits with the different organisations. So I know the ASA provides a secretariat for some of the SIGs and ANSCA provides the secretariat for some of the others. But definitely the common place to look for anything regarding the SIGs is that ACE website, which again, I'll put the link to in the show notes. Now, I know this must be going back away because it's been a few years since I've been on the welfare executive. So how long ago was this document written? The document on the online publication states that it was 2017. The initial idea was actually mooted in 2011. And then it took us another three years or so to bring it to what we have now. At the time, the Welfare Anesthetists SIG exec had a member from the College of Psychiatrists sitting on our exec. 
And Dr. Shirley Prager at the time was part of the initial pilot groups that set up the peer review groups, as they're called in psychiatry, back in the early 1990s. And the College of Psychiatry are very enthusiastic proponents of peer review groups and very encouraging of how we should use that in practice. Now, there's a few complications with nomenclature that we came across, and we can go into that in a bit more detail. But the process itself of a group of similar individuals with similar interests in their sphere of practice would get together for educational as well as quality assurance purposes, but with an element of peer support as well. So that's good to know. So it sounds like the psychiatrists have been doing this for a long time. Yes, in fact, they're looking at reviewing their processes now. But one of the big differences between the psychiatrists and us is that their college holds a centralised registry of their peer review groups. And then if someone is looking for a particular group to join, then they can be directed towards someone within the area of specialty or the geographical area. Now, that's more so, say, in other groups like general practice, so the New Zealand GPs, have a very similar system where, especially if they move towns or regions, then they can be assisted to find a new group. Now, that is something that we thought might be a bit more difficult in the anaesthetic space. It's really interesting that their colleges and their organisations help them to form these groups. That might be something that the ASA could help with in the future in terms of getting people together. So initially, we were looking at a very similar system. So back in 2011, 12, 13, when we were having these ongoing discussions, the difficulty with being part of a tripartite organisation is where to base all of these things. We were initially going to pilot a small group in Victoria. And then there was the differentiation between education, support and quality assurance. And each focus turned off some people, whereas it brought in some people. And so I think the difficulty was in trying to delineate the purpose of each function. In the end, we were going to leave it open so that people could choose. So it sounds like a much more organic process. If people want to form a group, this document is there to help guide them as to how to do it and how to record it and how to get CPD points for it. So if you had to start one from scratch, how would you imagine doing that? So I would be looking at an area of practice that I would want to be more focused on or improve or look at somewhere where I have, say, less immediate supports. So I would be looking at people who are of a similar level to me. And as we get more senior, that does get to be a little bit more challenging. But the intention is for it to be of a relatively flat hierarchy so that People in the group are comfortable having respectful collegial discussions, but they they need to be providing constructive criticism about the process. So having a significant power differential, say, between a new consultant and a head of department is probably not going to enhance that situation. So the first one is a flat hierarchy. The other one is to have relatively small numbers because the larger a group gets, the harder it is to organise everyone into the same space. And the idea of the peer group is that you have regular meetings of a circumscribed time and that there is someone in the group who will take on the organisation of those meetings on a regular basis. And there's a different person who will take on the facilitation of each meeting just to make things go more smoothly. 
So, for example, the organisation would be, they set up the venue, and in this case in Victoria, it would most likely be a teleconference, but other spaces such as work meeting rooms or private rooms in restaurants could also be potentials or people's homes if they're comfortable in that space. But the facilitator would lead the discussion. They'd look at a timely start, make sure that the discussion doesn't get stuck on contentious subjects and try and guide the discussion back to the original case or situation that was described and then make sure that everyone finishes in a timely manner. So coming back, what do you think is the ideal number for a group? I think six to eight would probably be ideal, although the Pew document does give a wider range of four to 12. And the main reasons for that is that depending on where you are, six might be a very ambitious number if you're wanting to keep it small and local or a very specific special interest group. Or if you're finding it hard to divide a large number of people into smaller groups, 12 would be the absolute maximum to keep things fluid. So you have six to eight people of about a similar hierarchy or stage in their career and you have one person who does all the logistics in terms of organising and then you would ask one person to be the facilitator. Would the person facilitate always be the same one for each meeting or would you encourage that role to be shared around? I think for most of these things, we would encourage that both the organiser and the facilitator role gets rotated on a regular basis. The intention is that this is not something for a few months or a year, but an ongoing thing that will uh, develop throughout our careers. And with that, there should be an agreed review and changeover of both the organiser and the facilitator, as well as an ongoing review of the purpose of the group and the values of the group. We'll talk about the review in a bit. I want to come back to that. Uh, I just wanted to make a point about the facilitating. And I think that's a conversation that I find in my role I have quite often with people because I'm often tapping people to come and join committees. And occasionally, once you're on a committee, you might get asked to chair a committee. So the role of being a committee member and being a chair, and no doubt in your role, you would also know this, is quite different. Chairing a, a meeting is something that you may not often get much experience with. So this peer group is actually quite a good way to practice that, hopefully in a supportive environment with a small group of people before you start chairing a big meeting with a feisty group of people with a complex agenda, all those things that you can start embarking on once you get more senior in your leadership roles. Absolutely. I think it's an excellent opportunity to do that without too much pressure. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the way that you and I started in this process, but I think it's definitely something to encourage. There's always a place to start. So you've got your six or eight people. Someone's organised a very lovely private room in a restaurant and you've got someone who've nominated as a facilitator, which I think that's a really good point. It is a little bit formal in its structure, these meetings. And then what happens during the meeting? So there needs to be a, a set direction of conversation. Agenda is too strict a word in this sense. But the organiser needs to clarify either someone's going to present a difficult case or if the peer group has been focused around a specific interest such as well-being in, in my case or perhaps in issues with leadership for another, they, they would have discussion based around that. So it doesn't have to be everyone presents their difficult cases and has a bit of a free-for-all. The intention isn't for it to be a rework of an m and meeting. It is more that if you do present a case, you could look at a specific aspect of it. So instead of just the clinical points, this is what I did and this is what happened, perhaps look more at the interaction or the circumstances that led to that interaction. 
there's a lot of other things going on, whether it's the, the usual stresses of being hungry, angry, late, tired, or a lot of other multitasking pressures that go into it. So that's in a clinical case. Or for example, if you bring it across to the well-being focus, you'd still need to have a case in inverted commas to discuss, but it would be around interactions or communication or how to conduct a debrief in a certain situation. And so you would tailor it to your specific group and aims, but it is meant to be separate from the morbidity and mortality type things. So I would make that a point of difference is that we shouldn't focus purely on the nuts and bolts of what happened. So it's really an opportunity to not just talk about the technical aspects of our work, but the non-technical skills that we bring. Absolutely. And and that's a really good point because I've often thought that it's just M&M, but could you have a different topic for each meeting? So you might say, this meeting, let's talk about some of the clinical challenges we've had in the last few months and people might bring a clinical case, but could you then say the topic of the next meeting will be communication challenges? Absolutely. Uh, and then could you say, bring another topic to the next meeting, which might be an ethical dilemma? Again, I would put it back to the organiser and facilitator to have a little bit of discussion. I think it's important to ensure that everyone brings something along to discuss and the speakers are rotated. But if you have a set time limit of, say, an hour, you might just decide to go in-depth into one person and look at different aspects. So in that one instance, if it is that complex, you can spend a lot of time looking at the technical aspects, the communication, the circumstances that made that particular case particularly challenging. It's to encourage reflection on all of your skills, not just the technical skills. So yes, one method might be to say with your 10 meetings across the year, this one will be on whatever technical thing you want to concentrate on, or this one can be on communication. This one could be on ethical challenges and go from there. Or you could look at all of those as one case as the discussion evolves. Mm. So everyone could bring an M&M case. Then the conversation starts with the technical side of things. You know, why did I choose rocuronium and not succinothonium that day? But in almost all these situations, there is an element of communication or ethics or just difficult decision making or time management prioritizing that take us beyond the technical. Absolutely. And I think it's to take it away from the rabbit hole, a fixation of if only I had done this, if only I had done that, without stepping back and looking at all of the holes in the Swiss cheese. Now, the intention isn't that we do an in-depth case review or root cause analysis of every single thing we've done. That, that is not the space for these meetings. It might just be that people are noticing a pattern of behaviour in a certain type case or a certain trigger and they might go, I don't know why, but this has always been my issue. I can't seem to work out. And then hopefully when you have enough trust and respect in your group, you can move on from, what do you think? Do you think it would have been okay if I'd used sucks instead of rock? To a bit more, why, why do I have this issue about everything else around it? You make me think about a comment earlier about the flat hierarchy. Because I, I remember when I was a registrar doing my pediatric rotation and I had a patient post tonsillectomy and they got laryngospasm in recovery. And to me, it was this huge event. There wasn't the buzzer pressing, but it was urgent call for help. There was PEEP, there was a bit of propofol and I was, oh, wow, this is super significant. And I wrote up an M&M form and it got presented at the department M&M meeting. And I remember one of the senior, super, super experienced pediatric anesthetists went, Oh, just another ringer spasm post tonsillectomy. Okay. 
And that was it. It was just moved on. It was my first proper one. And, and just to see that this is actually a really unwanted but not uncommon event and hopefully not to get too worked up by it. So do you think if we end up having people who are all from that same level, do you think that we might limit that years of experience voice being able to come into a peer group? I guess what I hadn't made clear with the flat hierarchy is that if you're going to keep teams within departments, that would be quite tricky to aim for a flat hierarchy because if you have people who are responsible for hiring and firing decisions in the same group as someone who is feeling very vulnerable, you're not going to be able to share in the same space which is why I would encourage to go outside your department or group to look at people who are senior but who do not have sway over your career and your career progression. So look at intermingling across departments and have a range of experience in that group. And I suppose it's people who are very senior and experienced in one area within clinical anesthesia who may or may not be that senior and experienced in another area. And likewise, I have this conversation quite often with people who are transitioning into private practice versus those people who do a lot of private practice. I think there's a lot of variety and experience there as well. I think it's definitely beneficial to have cross-pollination across groups. So that's where the discussion about the aims of that particular group can be clarified. To go back to the psychiatrists, they do have different special interests, but you need to look at what you want from your group. And it would help in that context if you want a little bit of cross-pollination to pick people with different strengths so you can learn from each other. Or if the reason is to enhance your knowledge in a specific subspecialty specialty area, then pick people from different hospitals who have the same subspecialty interest. And then have a balance of private and public in there so that you have the experience yeah, that's a really good point. So if you're looking at being a general anaesthetist and want a general anaesthetic group, then maybe you might have in your group a paediatric anaesthetist, an obstetric anaesthetist, and a predominantly private anaesthetist, a predominantly public anaesthetist, and so forth, until you make up your six or eight. But if, say, you're a paediatric anaesthetist, then you might want people from a tertiary hospital, a regional hospital, a mixed metro hospital, someone who does a lot of peds in private, and so forth. It's definitely important to have that balance of views because I think we all get used to our little corner and then you get very focused on how you do things in your space, in your institution. And um, it's important to bear in mind that there's no one true way to do things in medicine and be open to what is optimal in different situations and be open to having discussions about that. We've covered a lot there, just really nailing down into the composition of the group and how they would come together. Everyone brings a case of some sort. Everyone may not discuss their cases, but everyone comes prepared. So a little bit of homework for each meeting. And then you've got your organiser and your facilitator and you'd share those roles. How often do you think these groups should meet? So the ideal, which again was mooted from the psychiatrists and taken on by GP as well, was suggested as once a month, knowing that you might not be able to attend every one of them, you could still get to enough. Aim for about 10 a year and aim that at least two thirds of your group can be there. Mm. And it's good if you can schedule a few ahead of time if possible to facilitate that. And that's just part of being a good chair as well. You always try and prime your group as to when the next meeting will be. That's how you close the meeting, isn't it? Absolutely. That's definitely the aim. And the other important part about chairing is keeping meetings to time. So how long do you think these meetings should go for? Minimum an hour, I would say, because to have any form of in-depth discussion, you'd need that. I would 
not want it running past an hour. I'd say hour and a half at most, just so that we're already very busy in our lives. We don't want it to be another chore. We want it to be something that fulfills the aims of the education without stretching it too much where people drop off because it doesn't fulfill their needs. So we're really using each other to help with our education as well as a little bit of debrief if necessary. Very much. As I said, everyone takes different things out of it. If, if you are more looking for that clinical brief on the technical skills, there is an element of that. There is an element of um, quality assurance in that, am I doing what pretty much everyone else is doing? And I think especially a few years out, apart from the formal peer review process that is in the practice evaluation section of our CPD program, anaesthetists don't generally work together in the same theatres when you're at a certain level of seniority. And that does mean that we want to make sure that we're in touch with everyone else. Now, in teaching hospitals, you get registrars who can tell you how different or not you are from other people. That's not always the case, though, when you're in private practice and other smaller hospitals where there isn't necessarily the number of staff to enable that. And as the group gets more established, then you bring in the peer support And I think that's why we've made a definite effort not to exclude any of those functions because they're all very important. You've talked about reviewing the group. So how often do you think that should be done? And what sort of questions should we be asking when these groups are being reviewed? So the suggestion has been for an annual review and not every group gets to that point. It is looking at is this group serving the purpose for which I joined? Is it fulfilling my needs in that area? And also, how is it working as a group? Is everyone taking turns and contributing equally? And I don't mean that everyone has to have presented several cases. It's also in the discussion and being respectful during the meetings and looking at a set of group rules that definitely should be established at the start. What sort of rules should be established? So no direct criticism of the person that you're talking about, that all communication should be respectful and giving equal space to everybody to express their views, whether you agree with them or not, so that you do actually get to hear those opinions. And there's some really good points also to being a committee member or a committee chair. I think a good committee will review its terms of reference regularly. And it's a good time to say, have we got the right people on this group? Are we addressing the things that we said that we would set out to do? And the other good part of governance or good part of being in a committee is to make sure you have those terms of reference in the first place rather than just drifting along thinking that you're doing something that someone had an idea about a long time ago when that community was established. And as you and I both know, there are a lot of committees to sit on and it's good to know when a committee is functioning well. We've mentioned this a few times with the CPD points. So these are eligible for CPD points and how do we record that? The reason for calling this a peer group as opposed to a peer review group is because our college CPD program has very specific criteria on what constitutes a peer review. So the peer group meetings or discussions fall under the practice evaluation section, but it falls under case conferencing or discussions. So the only things you need to record from that for your evidence is the time and date of the discussion and who was present and a brief overview of the topics discussed. It doesn't need to go into great detail about anything. You don't even have to go into the specifics of a case, especially if that would compromise confidentiality. That's the practice evaluation part of the CPD program, which are the very hard points to get. So it is worthwhile doing this to get those points in that difficult category. 
Absolutely. If you manage to have 10 meetings over the year, that's 20 points already for only an hour of your time a month. That was, and one other question I wanted to ask, which was if people are presenting a case, that's a lot of work, get the PowerPoint out and make sure I sound smart and describe everything that needs to be described and do it in a concise way. How much preparation does everyone need to do before they come into their peer group? So that's something that I think is a little bit different to when you're presenting a case, say, at an M&M. I know that you do need to do some work. You need to be over the main points. But I think the more you prepare, sometimes you lose the whole reason you wanted to have the discussion. So it shouldn't be a chore. You are the expert of that case and what you want to present. And that doesn't mean you polish out all of the bad bits. The aim is you bring along to it the discussion that you want to have about it. So if it really is about whether you used rock and suck should have been better, or if it is that maybe you should have got the Glidescope out, then you can focus it that way. Or if you wanted to look at all of the organisation and non-technical issues that went along to contribute to the challenges, then that can be where you can focus it. In an hour, you're not going to be looking at a great in-depth discussion of everything that went wrong. It's more where you want to focus that. Other thing that I did forget to mention with the whole guidelines is that there needs to be strict confidentiality about the discussion within the group. And that should be very much emphasised at the start. It almost goes without saying, in fact, that we forgot to highlight it. So I'm glad you brought it up. So the psychiatrists and the GPs have been doing this for a while. Is there much evidence for it? And if so, what does the evidence show? So the psychiatrists have been looking at their own practice from the early 1990s. And as of last year, they were looking again at the composition and function of peer review groups. To look at the evidence, you've also got to look into the nomenclature, which is different across different specialties. So there's peer review, which has different meanings between anaesthetics and psychiatry. There's peer support, which has other connotations Then there's professional supervision, which can be a one-on-one experience. So they're all interlinked. They all have supportive roles, but the lack of agreement on how to describe this means that it's difficult to find consistent evidence across the board. So there's different terms, peer review, peer support. They're used different ways between the different specialties, and then it makes it harder to compare what the impact is of these groups, because no one seems to be calling them the same thing. Absolutely. And as a governing body, the SEEK, which is the tripartite organisation, was a bit reluctant to take on the process of administering all of this as an overarching rule. Certain departments have set up their own small groups and administer in that way, which has its benefits, but also the, the risks involved in trying to get the lack of hierarchy in there, as we said. But It would help to have someone who could be an overall organiser. That would be wonderful. But again, that also formalises things that people may already have. They may already have their groups meeting informally. They may already have their M&Ms, which probably could be adapted. But then bringing that group of, say, 20 or 30 people down to smaller groups might lead to some challenges and cause some divisions in the group that you don't really want to do. 
And it just shows that there's that spectrum, isn't there? And I think we've all been in M&Ms where you start with the case presentation, the technical discussion, and it very often goes into the non-technical aspects of our work. And I think all of these terms that you're describing and how the groups are established, it's really looking at where do you feel most comfortable? Do you want to start and define yourself as a group that looks at cases and the technical side of things? And again, probably that's something we're all most comfortable with. Or do you want to be a group that's going to start and identify yourself with focus on the non-technical side of things and we'll go into the technical from there if we need to. Absolutely. I'd say with most anaesthetists, starting with something that's comfortable to you would be a good introduction, but with the aim that you would discuss more than just the technical aspects of the case, which, as you said, usually happens organically. However, sometimes can be derailed if there's one or two vocal members. And the point of having smaller groups with a slightly flatter hierarchy is that you can have a more equal discussion and contribution. I think that's great. I'm hoping that by doing this episode that people will take up this option. As I said, there are a lot more people in isolation, particularly here in Victoria, but also as you get further in your career, you do spend a lot more time working in isolation. And I know people who are part of big groups often say, I've got my journal club, We've got our M&Ms, which depending on the size of your group might be a huge meeting, which again will fulfill some aspects of it, but perhaps going into a smaller group might find that you get a little bit more, I'm reluctant to use the word support, but a little bit more development, especially in those non-technical areas. Absolutely. Over the years, I've been part of different peer groups that have, for whatever reason, fallen by the wayside. And perhaps it's time to start again with these with myself as well. Always can revisit it. And it is interesting, as I said, I've received a lot more contact about this recently. There's a Victorian peer support initiative, and I think there's a similar initiative occurring in Western Australia, which will be slightly different than that. It'll be one-to-one peer support. But also there's plans that the peer supporters will come together as a group and meet and discuss things, obviously not about the people that they're providing their peer support to, but again, learn from each other. And so that is almost sounding like it will function a little bit like a peer group as we've been talking about here. Absolutely. And and I think with all of the little groups that I've ended up starting, they've all started off with similar intentions of people being in a space. So for example, we initially started off with the welfare advocates of the different hospitals around Victoria as a small group that worked similarly. It, it didn't fit all the criteria of a peer group, but the Topics of discussion were meant to be of support to each other in this. So what I would say is it doesn't have to be just clinical. It doesn't have to be specifics. But in the case that you described with peer support, it's definitely would fall within that realm. Great. Were there any key messages or anything else that you wanted people to take away about starting up a peer group or being involved in a peer group? I think the main thing is come to it with an open mind bring together a group and give it a go. And if it doesn't work for you, you can always rethink it. You can always move if you're not getting what you need. But if you're not going to give it a go, you're never going to learn where the benefits are with it. That's a really lovely key message. That's a philosophy of mine that I hold in general, that it's just good just to give things a go. And there's that saying in business, try something and fail, but learn to fail fast. Maybe with this, stick it out for a bit. But you've talked before about building in the review process, have that opportunity to critically appraise it and work out if it's doing what you think it should be doing. That's exactly right. Well, thanks, Kushalani. Thank you so much for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for giving me the time to chat. 
So I hope you enjoyed that and perhaps feel a bit inspired to form a peer group or get involved with a peer group of your own. If you have any feedback about the process or any questions, then please do shoot them through to us. ASA at asa.org.au is the best email to use. It has been a pretty tough year for some of us, and I want you to know that you are not alone. There are some anaesthetists who have a very big interest in well-being and who have actually trained to become counsellors. And they are more than willing to talk with other anaesthetists. Sometimes it's more comforting to talk to someone who understands the nature of the work that we do. If you would like to be put in contact with them, then please email us on support at asa.org.au. That is support at asa.org.au. That email goes directly to the CEO. So that's Mark Kymichael. Doesn't come to anyone else on the committees. It doesn't even come to me. I won't know about it. We do our utmost to protect your identity. The other thing is that we have a benevolent fund, so that is available for ASA members to access. And again, if you would like to make any query about that, please use that email support at asa.org.au to have a conversation with Mark, our CEO. All right, stay well out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the free music archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening.